All right. Well, hopefully it's already been a meaningful time for you to be able to meet up with God and sense something of His presence. We are in the fifth week of a series of talks where we've been addressing, thank you, the matter of how is it that God wants us to pray these days. We began to sense that God was saying, Meadowbrook family, I want you to be a people of prayer. And I want you to be more engaged in that in specific kinds of ways. And as we began to pursue him about that, how do you want us to pray? There were like five or six things that just kind of kept popping up. And so for these weeks, we've been addressing those things that it seems like God wants us to pray for his church, for his people, for us. And today, we're praying that God would make us loving. Now, um, in America, in the English language, I I think this is one of the more difficult subjects to talk about because um, we tend to automatically throw love into a couple of categories. And once we do that, it's a little bit difficult to really get at some of the nuance of what the Bible has to say about love and what God would be instructing us about love. And so I just want to encourage you today to not go on autopilot and say, okay, love, 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 heard all about it. Uh, But to kind of get on the edge of your seat, if you will, with an ear bent toward heaven to say, God, do you have anything fresh? Do you have something new that you want to say to me about love today and what that would mean for me to become a more loving person? By the time I get through with the talk, I'm going to be asking us to pray together. Would you, God, make me, make us a more loving people? And so uh, if you're going to be able to, to pray that with authenticity and with some passion, then you're going to want to be sure and know what God's up to when he's calling upon you to pray in that kind of way. A lot of you already know that uh, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. Uh, in English, we've got one word for love. In Greek, there are multiple words for love. Words that talk about romantic love and friendship love and kind of an affectionate love and family love and so on like that. And then there is a word that is more in keeping with a kind of God-type love. And you're probably familiar with that word, and it's called agape. And so I want us to begin right off the bat with a little definition help here. Agape uh, isn't just so much about how I feel about someone, but it's more about how I act toward that person. It's an action toward others that cares and meets needs. And so uh, I need you to kind of live in that context, in that connotation for a few moments as everything that we'll be talking about will have this more action-oriented sense to it and not so much that you kind of have warm fuzzies and sentimental feelings and tenderness. I mean, all those things can be nice aspects of love, but let's face it, sometimes love is not nice or soft, right? Sometimes love is tough. Sometimes love is hard. Sometimes love is not getting. It's a very sacrificial giving. And so with those kinds of things in mind, we have the very picture 
and person of God that helps us get at this meaning of agape love. And probably one of the best known verses in all the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved agape, the world, that he didn't just feel a certain way toward us, didn't just have warm fuzzies toward us, but he gave, gave his son. And of course that whole story is that sacrificial, atoning, suffering kind of uh, life and death that Jesus went through on our behalf. That was love. Agape type love. Now, as we have tried to define it for you, now we're going to illustrate it. And we're going to do that with one of the most familiar stories in the New Testament. If you have a Bible, you'll want to open it up to the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in the 10th chapter. And uh, we'll be talking about the story of the Good Samaritan. How many of you heard the story of the Good Samaritan before? Uh, it's like 70% of you in here. And so, like I said, it's a very familiar story. We're in a very familiar concept today. And so, uh, for you to get something fresh out of it, I'm, I'm, the last time I'll ask, don't go on autopilot. Okay? Stay with me. So, a little context of where this story about the Good Samaritan came from. Jesus had been in the countryside teaching. He had been intriguing and interesting a lot of people into his message and the call that he was exerting on their lives. And on one occasion, a lawyer came up. I know, the minute I said that, some lawyer jokes came to your mind. But this was a different kind of lawyer. This was not so much an attorney as it was a scribe who was familiar with the law of God. So this is like a religious guy. This is a guy that would really know his Bible. This is a guy who would know the Ten Commandments inside and out and be maybe a, even a teacher of that kind of thing. And so he comes up to Jesus, and that's where this whole thing begins, if you'll look with me in verse 25. So on one occasion, an, an expert in the law, a lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. So not so much just your basic honest question, but a little, little test time. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever wondered about how is it that somebody gets squared up with God and has eternal life, goes to heaven someday when they die, has the reality of heaven a part of their present experience? How does that happen? You ever ask that question? This lawyer asked the question, and we're going to get an answer for all of us. Jesus replied, so what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, I don't know about you, but when I have a question and somebody answers my question with a question, I get a little frustrated. But this guy just jumped right in there and he answered Here's what the law says. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, friends, that is a remarkable answer. You're familiar with this story. You may be familiar with that text and you're like, what, what's so remarkable about that? But here's a guy that has studied the law for a lot of years of his life. And the law is expansive. There's a lot to it. The Ten Commandments are kind of a summation of all of the law. And now this guy has distilled it down basically to two things. Love God. And you think about the first four of the Ten Commandments. Totally encompasses that. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Commandments 5 through 10 are like covered in that. And Jesus said, wow, you've answered correctly. Good answer. I kind of like to hear that from Jesus someday. Good answer. And, and Jesus said, do this and you will live. You'll have eternal life. Heaven will be your home. You'll know the blessing of God. Now that seems almost easy. Right? It's like the red button, push it, easy. What do I have to do to have eternal life? To be saved? To have things square with God? Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is that all? Okay, cool. Let's do it. Only it's not easy. Jesus will have to go on. The guy knew it wasn't easy. He already knew the nuance of agape. And so, he wanted, uh, if you look with me at verse 29, he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, um, who is my neighbor? You see, there's a lot of people I'd be glad to give agape love to. There's a couple of other people, well, not so much. Anybody come to your mind like that? The easy-to-love category and the hard-to-love category? Somebody at work? Somebody in the neighborhood? Somebody in the house? Who's my neighbor? Who do I have to do this agape love thing with, is what the guy's asking. And in reply, Jesus said, and he starts telling a story. And again, I know it's familiar to you, but try to, try to hang in there. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now already Jesus would have had not only their attention, but they would have had full imagination engaged. Because this was a very common thing. Making the trek, making the trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was a winding road and it kind of went through crevices and, and hillsides and mountains and all that kind of stuff. And it was just the perfect ambush kind of terrain for robbers to besiege people. And, and that is exactly what happened. So, a man's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he falls into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, see the guy laying on the side of the road all beat up? Now the question is, how do I go about this agape love thing? Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus said, then a priest, happened to be going down the same road. Oh, okay, okay, so this is how it happens. You act like a holy guy. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man, but he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, who was a temple worker, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, already Jesus has created mystery and intrigue with those that are listening to him right now because he's already broken the pattern. They, they were fully engaged in their imagination. They could see exactly what he was talking about. And this is how you go about loving somebody. Here comes a priest. Oops, that's not him. Here comes a Levite. Oops, that's not him. And then a Samaritan. 
Well, now, if you were an ancient Jew, at this point, your jaw would be dropping, your eyes would be widening, and there'd probably be some hair on the back of your neck beginning to stand up. There is no way 21st century Americans can grasp the animosity, the hatred that was between Jews and Samaritans. You just can't comprehend it. So, uh, you know, just try to imagine whatever people groups that you can that had this centuries-old animosity toward each other. And the minute that Jesus said, and then there was a Samaritan, already, you know, they've got this like visceral kind of response to the whole thing. And so uh, the Samaritan was traveling down that road, and he came where the man was, and when he saw him, he, NIV says, took pity on him. The more literal rendering of that is had compassion on him. That's a tremendously interesting Greek word. Splachna is the word. You like that word? Splachna. You, you want to say that? Say that. Splagna. No, okay. <laughs> but what that word means is it's a reference to internal organs in a person. In uh, American idiom, it'd be like saying he felt it in his gut. What did he feel in his gut? This compassion, these feelings for this guy who's beat up and half dead on the side of the road. He, he saw the guy and he felt it in his gut. And he went to him and apparently had his own little first aid kit with him. Uh, took out some bandages and poured some oil and some wine on uh, those wounds. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two silver coins, literally denarii, which you go, wow, he threw a couple of coins at the guy. This is the equivalent in that day of two months lodging and meals in that inn. It's extravagant. Okay, you remember who's listening to this story? This lawyer and some other uh, religious guys there with him? And this is just over-the-top kind of, of uh, deal with this Samaritan taking care of this Jew. And he tells the innkeeper, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. I'm not through. I'll be back, and if you have extra expense, I'll pay you for that. And so verse 36, Jesus turns to the lawyer and he says, So which of these three, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. Well, duh. I mean, it's hard to not get the answer right, but the guy was so taken with this Samaritan being the hero of the story, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. He says, well, it was the guy who showed mercy. And Jesus told him, go and do Likewise. Go and do likewise. That would be agape love. That would be the kind of fulfilling of the commandments that would square you up with God and give you everlasting life. Now, this gets us into how absolutely radical what we're talking about with agape love is. Agape love is not just a love 
that will have some action toward a person, have some compassion toward a person, and do something for a person, it will do that with an enemy. With an enemy. Jesus said on another occasion, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy. Make your enemy your neighbor. And so what he has done with this illustration is he has shown us that our neighbor is anybody that is near us. That God stirs in us to extend some kind of act of grace toward them. Now, to add a little more clarification to that, Jesus also said to his disciples near the end of his life when he was about to go to the cross and uh, die and be buried, etc., as he is in this upper room with them having a last supper and so on like that, he tells them on that occasion, just to add a little clarification to the whole thing, here's a new commandment that I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. Now, that sounds like a new commandment to you? That sounds like the old commandment. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. Except for Jesus said, no, I don't want you just loving him as yourself. I want you to love him like I have loved you. That's the new part of the commandment. So when the Scriptures teach us, you love others as you love yourself, you know, for a lot of years, people kind of took that in a psychological way to say, well, you know what, it's really important for you to love yourself if you're going to be able to love other people. And so it's really important that you, you know, have good self-esteem and, you, you know, you, you think highly, not too lowly of yourself and all that kind of thing. I, really not what it has to do with at all. What it has to do with is the measure of love that you'll give to someone else. Because the fact of the matter is you love yourself whether your esteem is high or low. Okay? Uh, if you go about the business of feeding yourself, clothing yourself, making sure you have a house and shelter, attending to the other needs that you have in your life, you're loving yourself. That's what self-love is. It's taking care of self, irrespective of what your esteem is. And so that is the measuring stick, the Scripture says, uh, of how you love other people. Just like you take care of yourself, take care of other people. Just like your needs get met, make sure their needs get met. And then Jesus said, uh, but I'm adding a new piece to that. Don't just love them at the measure that you love yourself. You love them at the measure of how I have loved you. Are you, are you staying with Do you see how radical we're talking about? That you don't just love people that are like you, but you love even enemy types. You love hard-to-love types. And you don't just love them with the measure that you love yourself. You love them with the measure that Jesus has loved you. Which is, when Jesus died for you, when He paid that sin-atoning price, took your punishment on Himself, He was loving you way beyond what we love ourselves. And he said, that's the way I want you to love each other. 
Well, how long do we have to do that, Lord? <laughs> What's the duration of that? I mean, I might be able to do that this week, okay, but like a whole month? A whole year? A whole life? You see, this is why this lifestyle cannot happen except your heart has been given to Christ and He has taken your heart and so transformed it, so enlivened it, so made it with, uh, in the likeness of His own heart that you begin to gain capacities to love as He loved that are way beyond our natural, normal capabilities. You, no, there's nobody ever born that can do this for the duration of an entire lifetime. Paul told us in Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Now that's in a context of about 20 verses, and that really is what I was going to talk with you about today, and it was just like... I need 20 weeks to talk about that whole thing. So let me just give it to you in like two minutes. Paul is basically saying, you know what? It's possible for us to pay off every debt we ever incur in life. In fact, we should. You need to pay off every debt you ever incur in life. Pay off your mortgage. Pay off your cars. Pay off your credit cards. Pay, you know, it's not a prohibition to ever having debt. It's, you know, the debts you have, pay them off. Pay your taxes. That's the whole context of Romans 13. But there's a debt, Paul says, you can never pay in full. And that's the debt to love each other. It is never paid in full in this lifetime. And you go, well, how can that be? Because that debt is something that you and I pay toward every type person in every type scenario until we breathe no more. And the reason that God can ask us and call us and command us to do that is because He has given us that kind of love to begin with. So again, the sacrificial atoning death of Christ, His paying our penalty, paying the price of our sins, that was so lavish, that was so over the top, that was so beyond any other expression of love that's ever happened in all of history. He was like, you'll always be indebted to that. And you go, well, shouldn't we be like paying the debt to Jesus then? What's this other people, hard to love types? And the fact of the matter is, we only can love that way because He gives us love. We love because He first loved us. Every time I'm in a situation where I need to give love, i got to get it. Because I only have a, a, a reservoir, a tank that can you know, handle so much. So I keep getting it to give it, get it to give it. And who do I keep getting it from? I keep getting it from Him. I stay in constant debt to Him. I can never... Uh, repay him in that kind of sense, but in the other kind of sense, it all comes to me by grace. Grace cannot be repaid. If you try to repay grace, then you've entered into a business transaction. It's no longer grace. So the Bible says, don't make the grace of God empty or void of no account in your life. Don't be trying to pay back Jesus. Follow Jesus. And pay out the debt of love to other people the rest of your life. 
This is why I said at the beginning, I don't know how many of us will really want to pray, God, would you make me a loving person? Because it's going to take everything of who you are to live that kind of way all the days of your life. And finally, I'll close with this piece. When we engage in an agape love kind of lifestyle, we are identified with Christ. We are identified as His son, as His daughter, as an heir to all of His promises. The Apostle John tells us in his first letter, it's by this we know agape love, that He, Jesus, laid down His life for us, and we ought, that Greek word means debt, the same word Paul was using in Romans 13. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, let me close with this. I could tell you a hundred stories, but let me just tell you this one, um, because it's one of the more difficult ones for me. Um, but when Christ followers begin to take this mandate to love as Christ loved, seriously, and that becomes your lifestyle, that becomes your way of life, in every scenario that God begins to tap you about, I want you loving this guy, I want you loving this woman, I want you to meet their needs and, and uh, come uh, alongside of them in this part of the difficult journey, whatever then we seek to trust Him and do that and, and look for His grace to come upon us in such times so that we can be who He's asked us to be. And so uh, a lot of you know that uh, I grew up estranged from my father, my biological father, and uh, I went uh, decades without uh, seeing him or having contact with him or knowing anything about him. And... Um, uh, about 11 years ago, um, I felt impressed by God to try to make contact with Him. Uh, and you know what? I didn't really realize that, you know, people would say, how do you feel about your dad not being in your life and so on? And I thought, you know, it wasn't a big deal. He never was. I didn't even know what I was missing, etc. Uh, but as I've said in here before, when I became a parent, when I became a dad, then I began to recognize what I hadn't had. And then I began to have issues. And, um, uh, and so I, I began to discover, you know, I've got resentments about that. I've got hard feelings about that. And so I looked him up, found out where in the world he was living, and uh, uh, made a trip there and, and a contact to see if we could connect. And so we had a day together, and we connected a little bit, and it was kind of awkward. And um, basically, you know, I just said, I wanted you to know a little bit about what was going on in my life and to just say, you know, bless you and I hope it goes well with you. And he kind of said the same thing and we went our separate ways. Um, about a year and a half later, I got a telephone call from his wife and she is telling me that, um, you know, he's very, very sick and he's about to die and he's in a coma, has been in a coma for a couple of days. And she just thought that I would want to know. And, uh, you know, I thanked her for the call and said, you know, I'll be praying for you and 
I know this is very difficult for you, and, and uh, you know, I appreciate an update on how things are going for you, that kind of thing. So I hang up, and uh, I'm talking to Sherry about it, and I uh, talk to some friends uh, in my share group about it, and I had some people praying for me. What should I do? I mean, I don't even know this guy, and he's about to die, and he's in a coma. Should I go? Or does it not matter? Or, or what? And long story short, I felt impressed that I should go. I hopped a plane. I'm going from here to Memphis. And while I'm on the plane, I'm praying. And I'm saying, so God, what am I supposed to do when I get there? Because this is kind of awkward and weird. And I, again, didn't hear this audible voice, but I had this very clear, distinct impression from God. These thoughts came into my mind that I knew were from Him. You never got a Father's blessing and neither has He. I want you to take my blessing, a Father's blessing, to Him. And I, I'm on the plane, and I'm, at this moment now, I'm incredulous. Because I've already done, the, I already feel like I'm being loving. Here's this huge gesture. I'm on a plane. I'm going to see somebody I don't even know. I'm going to hang out with you know people in his circle I don't even know and all this. I already feel like I'm pretty magnanimous at this point. And now God is saying, no, no. I, I have you going because I want you to bless him with my blessing. And I'm not altogether happy about that. And so I'm like, okay, so what does that look like? What do you want me to do about that? And... For the next hour, God began to bring to my mind memories. And listen, my parents divorced when I was four, so I didn't have a whole lot of memories. And then I only saw him occasionally in my elementary years, and then I didn't see him again until I was 40-something. But he began to bring memories to my mind I didn't even know were there. And they were positive memories. And they were memories of, you know, him getting something for me or doing something for me or taking me somewhere or something like that. I just began to write those things down. And by the time the plane landed, I had a page. No kidding, I had a page of things that were positive memories that I, I, I hadn't remembered ever, maybe. And I felt like God was saying, I want you to go and I want you to go say all these things to him and thank him. And then tell him how much I love him, how much the Heavenly Father loves him. And, of course, he's in a coma. So I'm, I'm envisioning that I'm going to go uh, to this hospital, and I'm going to sit by his bed, and I'm going to, like, whisper these things into his comatose ear, you know, which is not um, as difficult as if he's, like, eyeballing me, right? And so the plane lands, and uh, I go to a phone, and I call... Uh, my dad's wife and say, you know, I've landed in Memphis and I'm going to get a car and head your way. It's going to be about two hours uh, to where they live. And she goes, well, Scott, you're not going to believe it, but he has come out of the coma and we can't wait for you to get here. <laughs> and I'm like, no kidding. <laughs> and I knew what I had to do. Only it wasn't going to be in that comatose ear. And so... I drive the two hours there. I'm rehearsing all this stuff of what I'm going to say and whatever, and I get there. and He's at his house sitting at his dining room table, and I walk in, and literally for five hours, I sat across a breakfast table 
you know, like this close to him for five hours talking. It all began with me saying, you know what, I've come with a message from God. Yeah. This guy didn't even know me. You know, a message from God. <laughs> and it all came. I got grace to say what I needed to say. I, I got grace to be in that kind of proximity with him. I got grace to have some closure things happening because he died two weeks later. I, I didn't know when he was going to die, but that's how it happened. Uh, but all this took place on that one afternoon as I'm uh, you know, sitting in his kitchen across from that little breakfast table with him. Friends, here's my point. If you are going to be a Christ follower, your life is no longer your own. These guys today that we baptized have said, my life is no longer my own. I have given my life to Him. I will follow Him. I'll become who He dreams me to be. I will live a life like Christ. I will be His love agent in this world. At whatever cost that exacts out of me, that takes out of me, I will purpose to not only see people and respond to people and love people in the measure that I love myself, but I will seek to do that in the measure of how He has loved me. And so with those things in mind, I'm, I'm asking, is that a prayer that you'd pray today? I mean, I, I suspect for a lot of you, God's already brought the name or face of one or two people to your mind that if He made you a loving person, you would be called to do some loving things for that person, for that guy, for that woman. But what's the alternative? I either want the Christ life or I want my own busted self life. And I want the Christ life. And I know some of you do too. So here we are at this moment. Let's bow together. If you're not uh, at a point where you're ready to pray this, just have a quiet moment for yourself. But if this is your prayer, then with all your heart, silently, pray along with me. O oh God, our Father, You who have loved us in ways we can't even imagine, We want to be your people. We want to be your agents of grace and love to others. We want to pay whatever price, whatever debt is necessary.
necessary to live the love, the agape love life. Lord, we confess on our own we can't do it. We're inadequate. We're incapable. We confess our trust in You. That with every step of obedience, You'll give us grace. You'll give us love. You'll give us words. You'll give us the touch that we need to bring to someone. You'll give us the wherewithal to meet a need. To be with someone in a difficult time. So Lord, do that miracle in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.